of the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of the many sites and podcasts on the Now Playing Network. Here in each episode of the Directors Club, we take a look at a director's body of work. Their legendary classics, breakout films, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that may be found amongst the filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films can result when you take a look at a director's filmography. Come join us on the film journey. We're looking through some of the legendary films done by a director who has a most unusual career path in the work of Francis Ford Coppola. Hello, everyone. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And joining us to look at Coppola Sr.'s work is the Uber Guardian of the Now Playing Network and its constellation of podcasts. And I prefer to be known as the Don of the Now Playing Network. <laughs> and he's also the founder and original podcaster, the OP of the Directors Club with his friend Patrick Rapal. It is our, our great pleasure to welcome back Jim Lechkowski. Who? We Me? Made, we made you an offer you couldn't refuse, and here ah, you are. <laughs> very good. Well, gentlemen, I just want to say for the record that I don't care what we're talking about. All I want is a big, fat recording. That's what Hackman says at one point in the conversation, and we're about to have a conversation. Yes, uh, Conversation is one of the films we'll be talking about in, in Coppola's career in this episode, but due to his very unique trajectory, we're not going to be dealing with his entire filmography. In this one, this is going to be part one. Often when there's two parts to our episodes, it's just because of the sheer number of films. But in this case, it's kind of the giganticness of the films we're going to be talking about. We are going to discuss what I think we all agree are, are four of the greatest films ever made. This run that starts with The Godfather, goes through The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, and Apocalypse Now. But then to carry on from there is really an entirely different discussion because he's got some great movies, some not-so-great movies, but there's nothing later on in Coppola's career that, that compares with this four-film run, and I think that four-film run might be the best four-film run of any director, and wondering what you guys think of that. I would, I would agree, to be honest. I mean, I was thinking, well, what maybe Hitchcock, Woody Allen, maybe, I don't... When I think of Spielberg, we, we have 1941 in the midst of all right. these other great <laughs> films. But, uh, yeah, I think that Coppola is kind of a remarkable talent in that regard. And that we talk about the golden age of the 70s and how, what an amazing time for filmmaking that was. And certainly you can read a book like Easy Riders, Raging Bulls to get an in-depth look at that. Especially when you think of all the guys hanging out together in that mm -hmm. group. Lucas, De Palma, Spielberg, they were just like all kind of hanging out and commenting on each other's work throughout, which is just kind of a remarkable feat in and of itself. But I'm 100% I'm with you on this being like the, the best four films in a row from any major director. Well, there, it's so incredibly unique what Coppola did, because there are directors who've had runs of films where the quality of the films have been very good to great. I would say John Pierre Melville's had a had a really good run. John Carpenter from 
from his first major film, Assault on Precinct 13, all the way up to the uh, memoirs of an invisible man. It was just an exceptional selection of films where the level was high. But, we're, but on the one hand, we're talking on high level, but then we also have to reference Godfather level. Mm -hmm. I guess the closest I would have to say would be the, the Renoir period where he included Rules sure. of the Game and The Grand Illusion and the Hitchcock streak that included North by Northwest, Rear Window, and Vertigo. But... Though, but to your point, Brad, those were bracketed by uh, by other films where the quality dipped. And we even had a show on Akira Kurosawa where we got to talk about Rashomon, Ikiru, Seven Samurai, and Throne of Blood. And, and that would have compared, but there were other films in between those. Mm -hmm. This is the entire decade of the 70s. Francis Ford Coppola does these four films. And, and once seen, they, they cannot be forgotten. <laughs> That's yeah. right. And there's another angle to, to, to explore on this, because this isn't a case where, say, like an equivalent of Throne of Blood and Seven Samurai, it's exceptional in a similar way. Obviously, the two Godfather films are exceptional in similar ways, mm -hmm. but even amongst them, as we'll talk about, they they move differently in the Godfather, in the areas of about this family of the Corleones, and... Apocalypse Now and the Conversation are exceptional in completely different ways. This is something as if, like, you had uh, the cinematic guys who are all over the spectrum. We're talking like Billy Wilder or Howard Hawks. Mm. This is kind of a micro-streak version of some of their, their sequences where they would jump in from comedy to drama and so forth. But I don't even think, even in the Hawks period... There's something where they were in such an exceptional streak all in a row like this. Right. And, Jim, you alluded to the, his importance in the world of New Hollywood. And I don't think that could be uh, said enough, because he was, in essence, the godfather <laughs> of the film school generation. He was pretty yeah. much the first guy to go straight from film schools to what was not the first New Hollywood films. Those were often thought to be Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate. But when you get to The Godfather, it's the first New Hollywood epic. It's yeah. the point of no return. The shadow that The Godfather put forward goes through the entire rest of the 70s. It's it's pretty remarkable just to you know talk about Francis Ford Coppola and just because... Over the years, even people who aren't cinephiles will cite The Godfather as one of their all-time favorite movies, or Apocalypse Now, in the case of my uh, my dad, and just like saying, this is the movie. This is one of the all-time great movies. And then for me, um, the conversation has become one of my all-time favorite movies. So there's just so much to dive into here. I mean, we'll definitely get into it. You call the movies the movie. Yeah. Godfather? And Apocalypse Now, in two different ways, I feel, you can say it's the movie about what they're about. Mm -hmm. uh, Francis Ford Coppola himself had an interesting theory as to what he thought Apocalypse Now was about. But we'll get to that when we, when we get to that film. But at this point, he had a very inauspicious, if common start to many of these directors of New Hollywood, as his origin point. The films of Roger Corman. Well, even before that... 
He started out even less auspiciously uh, directing some cheapo softcore porns uh, back in 1962, a movie called Tonight for Sure and The Bellboy and the Playgirls. Ah. <laughs> so these are unseen by us, but a couple of us did get to see his uh, first Corman work, Dementia 13, released in 1963. Francis Ford Coppola's low-budget black-and-white film is a psychological horror that follows a greedy widow's effort to secure a large inheritance from her late husband's mother. When she arrives at the family estate, it's in time for the annual funeral of the sister who drowned years ago, but whose death continues to obsess the family, even as a new body count begins. There's a lot of caveats with this film, mostly having to do with the low, low budget, the standard for uh, the Corman stable. A lot of new Hollywood directors, from Martin Scorsese to Peter Bogdanovich, got their start with Roger Corman. So the first thing you're kind of going to notice with this one is it does look like it was made for very little money. But I have to say that taking that into account... Even though it doesn't resemble any of his later films, there's some quality here. I really found this uh, worked as an effective psychological horror film. There's a lot of very surreal imagery involving dolls and toys and headstones where they shouldn't be. The acting's a little a little funky. That that's not quite the movie's strong point. But he's already showing this this visual sense. Mm. I found that in a strange connection to our earlier podcast, uh, once again, uh, Don Corscarelli has not directed this episode of the very little-known <laughs> Dementia series. <laughs> um, when you see the movie, I look at a guy who is trying things, but not particularly with any idea in mind for this, uh, for to connect one scene to another. To me, it looks the film looks like a... closest equivalent would be Romero's Night of the Living Dead in terms of just trying cameras put at an angle and some real claustrophobic looks at people's faces and, and some of the editing is cut in such a very sharp and frenetic manner to go and get, uh, make a attempt a disquieting feeling. But unlike, say, the early work of Demi, where he's, I see an intent behind, okay, how am I going to make this interesting? I just see and it's more of an exploration upon the young Ford Coppola's um, directorial efforts. Right, his strength here isn't as a storyteller. He's certainly taken influence from Hitchcock's Psycho, 
which had just come out uh, around the time he was making the film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know Corman kind of wanted that feel. Oh, this was kind of the Corman take on yeah. Psycho? Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Mm-hmm. The um, mother issues are have definitely... Oh, Hitchcock! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another career trajectory I might compare this to is uh, very early Stanley Kubrick. If you watch Killer's Kiss, it's, again, not a well-held-together film that resonates completely. Yet, in the midst of the film, you see these shots, you see these moments, and you say, oh, that's the Kubrick we're going to get. That's definitely and, true. And I think yeah. that happens here for Coppola as well. Hmm. There's, just, there's just some individual moments that are solid suspense pieces, but they don't really come together to make for a great film. But I think if you're in the mood for kind of a, a low-budget cheapy horror, you could do a lot worse. I see some potential in the film for the drama between the different family members. That was a little upended by the pretty awful acting that's done to <laughs> depict it. <Yeah. laughs> um, I didn't find a, uh, a lot of suspense from the killer side. I, I found the uh, it was a, a very mild slasher-worthy kind of Exploit, ex- exploitation topic that I thought that was rendered in a kind of pedestrian way. I was actually more drawn in by the intensity of the of this family just doing this unusual ritual and the various ways the family members are all going crazy in their own particular manner. Right. It eventually turns into a, a slasher film. Yeah. That is less interesting than the buildup before you know what kind of film it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Clearly, it seems interested in family dynamics early on. It may be a fun exploration if you really dive in on the things that made him exceptional in his later films, in that the three components are this sense of belonging to a family and what sets you apart from the family unit, the appreciation of brutal violence. It has one hell of a final image, for mm-hmm. example. <laughs> like, nice. And then the idea of trying to go and sustain tension. Right. So from there, Coppola went to a film that none of us have seen. Uh, it's called You're a Big Boy Now, released in 1966. It's a movie he actually wrote. And I gather is a coming-of-age film that he used as his UCLA thesis film. A little bit more high-profile was Finian's Rainbow in 1968. This was a musical fantasy with Fred Astaire and Petula Clark about uh, stealing a leprechaun's pot of gold. So that's <laughs> uh, that sounds very fanciful. Yeah. We haven't seen it. It wasn't a big hit, but... His next film might be the first one to really introduce Coppola as the auteur we've come to know and somebody who's dealing with the kind of themes that we're going to get into in his 1969 film, The Rain People.
Shirley Knight plays a New York housewife who, upon learning she's pregnant, starts to question her marriage, her desire to be a mother, and who she is as a person. She leaves her husband to find herself driving across the country. When she picks up a hitchhiker played by James Caan, his mental impairment from a football injury puts her in the exact same position of responsibility she had hoped to avoid. The Rain People, for me, is kind of a on-the-one-hand-and-on-the-other-hand kind of film, because there's a lot I liked about it. Uh, here, the acting is actually good, and that shouldn't be a surprise with people like James Caan and Robert Duvall, whose names will come up uh, a few times later mm -hmm. in the cast. Shirley Knight is solid as the lead, and... It's kind of impressive to see Coppola, for the only time I could think of, really take on a, a female point of view. I mean, this is almost like a precursor to uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore mm -hmm. in kind of this male New Hollywood view of women's struggles and what it means to be in a marriage when one doesn't have agency and then to find out you're pregnant when you're absolutely not ready to be. And so you have a, a main character who you understand their motivations. Now, you don't necessarily agree with their actions. She does a lot that's very reckless. But if there's a signature throughout Coppola, it might be this idea of the flawed protagonist. Hmm. And to one degree or another, how far you could follow them and at what level you're with them and where, where you leave their points of view. It's an interesting way to start this type of character that will build <laughs> into Michael Corleone. <laughs> That's a great point, Brad. When you look through his subsequent films, it's going to be a little more of an open question as to how much you should give yourself towards characters. There's certain characters in films where you absolutely give in to them. You, you, you are completely on their side. You want to find out what they'll do next, and you really, really hope for them to succeed. But in this one, Coppola does start with the idea of, of giving us some ambiguous distance from this character and their, and their actions. There's a little bit of a, a technique that will come to bear in the conversation in that two of the main characters have recollections from their past that drives them to do these reckless things. Mm -hmm. Shirley Knight's character goes into action after she has a moment where she's recalling just this very frenetic collection of images from her wedding night, for example. And then later, a similar, like, onrush of, of imagery comes in for an argument. James Kahn's football player, you were effectively put into his sort of state of non-mind mm -hmm. by, by his life has just... And anything he knows has been defined by his football playing and it's just a collision of just of, of pounding of tackles and and the spitting of the camera as a person hits the dirt from a football play you can see how a guy who's literally being hit by this imagery regularly cannot think straight which is mm -hmm. very much very much his issue and though their relationship is 
it goes to some very strange levels. It's uh, almost the um, the female Freudian way, in a way, because at times she, including her the initial pickup, is meant to become a sort of sexual liaison. Yet it somehow transfers to become her getting to the mother role as the film goes on. Yeah, that kind of leads to what I think is a bit of the, the bad news about the film, which is that its symbolism is really, really obvious <laughs> and hit home very hard a lot. So this idea of James Kahn, who, who does a really good job playing the, this character who can't make mental connections, he can't get angry, he kind of only barely understands what's going on around him. The idea that he is the surrogate for her unborn baby, that she's already worried that she's going to be a bad mother, and then, frankly, the way she treats Khan throughout this film yeah. kind of leads us to believe, well, yeah, she really would be a bad mother, <laughs> which is the point. But this is, I think an early script and it kind of shows the markings of a screenwriter who hasn't yet got the confidence to come into his own yet. This, by the way, the screenwriter is one Francis Ford Coppola, which has to be clear. <laughs> yes, yes, it is its own script and while I won't give it away, it ends in a bit of a trite way just because I feel like maybe he didn't know how to end it. Oh, I really liked that ending. Part of it is the fact that it's sloppy, but I, I find it sloppy in interesting ways, because one of the other people of this four-person drama comes from Duval's character, who is a very, very unusual cop. As part of giving her a ticket, he decides to go and ask her out on a date, <laughs> and then their first real thing they decide to do together is to go to a chicken farm to <laughs> see how James Conn's character is doing. And their their date goes off fairly disastrously as he goes to an absolute slapdash trailer where he gets into an argument with his uh, what looks to be twelve year old daughter. <laughs> it gets to some very awkward moments with with her uh, as he's sort of chasing her around <laughs> as she interrupts their uh, lovemaking session. Right. <laughs> but but the ending is the ending is sort of fascinating because all four people collide. Each one of these people are flawed. And they react to each other uh, in a kind of behavior that they sort of learned from another. They learned from another person. <laughs> um, uh, Shirley Knight's impulse is to just go and, and, and try to go and, and take care of things and then be repelled by them. Mm -hmm. The the cop guy is uh, who had lost who had lost his wife uh, or, uh, in a fire, I believe. Yes, yeah. and which also, by the way, has an amazing flashback of him of him walking amongst the ruins of a flaming house. He's driven by like this absolute knowledge of his lack of authority in this particular podunk location, and then uh, James Kahn's motivations of being defined almost entirely by his ability to obey football commands, mm -hmm. and it all culminates with even the daughter has learned something that she 
both uses and misuses at the conclusion. So I liked how all these okay. different... It's not very robust in terms of making a, a, a community or, or making the characters nuanced, but I like how when people do things for reasons that are not necessarily related to the original <laughs> reasons that they, right. uh, they go to this behavior. And it's only kind of the very last twist that I had issues with. I actually was very impressed by how the Robert Duvall character, who very easily could have been a stock yeah, could very nasty, be a, one nasty guy, guy. Yep. who is given a lot of different levels. Unlike Dementia 13, Coppola's working with top-notch acting talent, and he's getting his feet wet in the kind of style he's going to develop. But before he does, he's got another project, not a directing project, but a pretty high-profile writing project. That's right. He managed to get an Academy Award for writing the script to Patton. Ford Coppola has said in interviews something that is very, very cool to keep in mind when we think about him and we think about the movies that he's made. Patton, the movie starts with the general standing in front of a gigantic American flag and leading in this incredibly robust gigantic speech about how uh, Americans are winners and we won't tolerate a loser and it's now known as a legendary part of the film the thing that most people remember actually when they recall Patton and Coppola has said that all the studio people hated that intro and they completely did not understand why it's there hmm. now to be fair to studio people they could ask questions like who is he talking to? <laughs> Why is he there? What does this have to do with any of the events of the movie? And while these questions are fair and it doesn't make sense from a plot standpoint for Patton, it makes perfect sense to introduce the larger-than-life guy and the larger-than-life American canvas upon, he, upon which his actions took place. And Coppola fought, uh, fought like hell to keep that in. That's a lesson that he would give to any young filmmaker or creative type, is know what is the part of your movie you are willing to fight to the death to keep. And that will, more often than not, turn out to be the thing that will be you'll be remembered for. And I can watch George C. Scott, you know, for an entire three hours, probably, doing those types of monologues and speeches. And seeing that uh, recently at the Music Box in 70mm is quite a... Quite a treat and quite a spectacle. I, I had no idea he had written the script until I saw the movie for the first time. Mm -hmm. And another thing that, keep, that that may be very interesting to keep in mind uh, with Patton that we'll, we'll bring into the films we're about to talk about is that all the crazy events and the speeches and the sayings that happen in that movie, they're all actual things that Patton has said. Coppola did an, an enormous amount of research to try and do right by this epic figure. And there I, in, I think we may have one of the keys in that when you have a big subject that he dives in and explores on the details of that subject, I think the fidelity is, is one of the keys. Well, one of the greatest compliments that has been paid to the movie is that it came out during the height of the Vietnam War, and anti-war people loved the movie and thought it was making a satirical statement on these kind of uh, over-the-top, gruff military types. 
Yet people who were older, maybe for the war, they embraced Patton as well. A lot of this is due to George C. Scott's performance mm -hmm. also. But the script, we talked about complex leads. And Patton fits into that category. Here's a guy that at one moment you're looking at and you're like, yeah, damn, this is the guy I would want fighting my war. And then the next moment's like, oh, shit, he just, he just went too far. Yeah, mm -hmm. they don't demonize him or romanticize him. Right. And I think that's really smart. It's a, a phenomenal characterization that Coppola definitely was aided by his extensive look at this guy. And so then it comes time for the main course. Right. We will have an epic feast commences when we look at uh, Coppola's film The Godfather from 1972. Never heard of it. <laughs> It's about a fictional crime family in the 40s and 50s, led by the beloved and feared Don Vito Corleone, played by Marlon Brando. When an attempt is made on the Don's life, it is Al Pacino's Michael, the son who joined the army and wanted to live a normal life, who steps up to protect the family. As warring mafia families plot and murder for control, it's this least likely of sons who is put on the path to be the next godfather. We look at this movie as an all-star cast of our greatest actors. But at the time, it was kind of Marlon Brando and a group of unknowns. And they'd all become legendary thanks to what they did in this film. Brando was kind of on its career decline up until this point, and boy did he come back. That opening sequence photographed uh, by Gordon Willis, who made a, had the nickname Prince of Darkness because he <laughs> used so many shadows and, and dark hues. When the Don is first taking favors uh, from his supplicants at his daughter's wedding, the way he's shot, the way you can barely see him, and he's this mysterious figure that you only get glimpses of, but you see the reactions of everybody meeting him visually and through Brando's performance. Everything you need to know about this guy is conveyed in the very first scenes. Coppola knows how to open a movie, people. <laughs> he really does. And uh, you mentioned Gordon Willis and, and doing some research, too. It's, I know Academy Awards are bullshit and ridiculous, but the fact that he was only nominated for Zelig and Godfather Part 3 is kind of a crime. Mm. I mean, Manhattan, for crying out loud? 
but certainly his work here is phenomenal. And it's weird because when I when I first saw The Godfather, it was definitely post Sopranos and post Goodfellas. Hmm. And I, in my first viewing of it, was kind of similar to a lot of my viewings of Francis Ford Coppola movies. Was yes, I get it. It's a classic. It's a great film. But did I strongly respond to it on a first viewing? Not necessarily. And that's mainly because like, I felt like I was inundated <laughs> with the Mafia storylines in, in various ways, in various forms, including Goodfellas. And to me, that, like, that felt like the end-all, be-all, final summation, even though I know Godfather came way before it. Now, after like three or four viewings, I, I truly feel it's a masterpiece in every, every way, shape, and form. I like you, The way you're describing that opening scene is just, to me, kind of the summation of what makes this movie so strong, is that like, he knows how to visually tell a story and convey emotion without spelling everything out, necessarily. Like, even little details, just like him stroking the cat, which was just like a complete accident. The cat just happened to wander onto Marlon Brando's lap and he just starts stroking it. And just like those little... Just that choice and the body language he utilizes is kind of just says so much about this guy. And I, I, I feel that through constantly through this movie. You just get a sense of who these people are, that you've been living with them for so long. You know them, mm -hmm. practically. If it wasn't for the other movies that Francis Ford Coppola managed to make, this movie coming after, after Finian's Rainbow <laughs> and the Rain People is a spectacular miracle upon miracles. I think the, he would even say the same thing. The, <laughs> well, the close, right, the closest I would say in approximation is Casablanca. If you look behind the scenes of Casablanca, it was riddled with, pro with problems. I think they were even writing the script as the movie went on. There are some legendary casting choices that made way for <laughs> So Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman could take those roles. When you see Casablanca, when you see The Godfather, you see a movie where every single component is so perfectly attuned towards the story. Every single one. Uh, the, uh, the lighting and the performances and the story just all come across as so well put together, it is as if the uh, film stock itself had been found in a treasure vault or, or descended from a heavenly dimension. On it's, it's absolutely shocking how all these components work so effectively together, including, like you said, on the cat, even the accidents mm, on the yeah. film. It's tough nowadays that it seems such a legendary film, and then when you look at it, every decision creatively looks so right. For us to get an increased appreciation upon it. But there's a couple ways to explore to make you just realize what a stunning achievement it was for everyone involved. One way, this, and this is a cheesy way I would recommend, is to take a look at any U.A. Bowl movie. <laughs> now, U.A. Bowl uh, shares a, a similarity with Ed Wood in, in the sense that other directors may have made worse movies, but he makes movies where every part of the movie making is bad. Every and it's, decision, yeah. Every, it's every single one. It's easy, so easy, to take for granted, like, just the amazing set design that happens in The Godfather. 
that when you see how shoddy it can be, <laughs> how shoddy like lighting can look like it's a, 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 a soap opera, <laughs> how badly wigs and costumes can be, and to see how all these period details work beautifully in in Coppola's film. <laughs> so it sometimes I find it could help to look in the opposite direction. Another thing is that due to the benefit of history, you look at The Godfather and you say, well, this is a craftsman at the peak of his creative powers. And sometimes people get in the mindset of that, that like, Paul Thomas Anderson, Stanley Kubrick, Wes Anderson, or Martin Scorsese, and Hitchcock, they have storyboarded this, they've planned this. It's so good. Everything fits so well, right? That you think, oh, it had to have been done by a master creative force. No, James Conn on set said everybody was miserable. <laughs> and I would recommend to that, when you to get the DVD and listen to the of Godfather and listen to the commentary for Francis Ford Coppola. I the DVD was re, the commentary was recorded I want to say in the 90s hmm. and even 25 years later he's still incredibly freaked out about it. He is right. so he he does he puts in some good insights but he's mostly comes across as an absolute nervous wreck talking about how many of these decisions were being continually questioned by the producer Challenge, Robert Evans yeah. by the studio heads and and so many of these choices were called into doubt some directors thrive on order on pre-planning <laughs> on knowing what's going to happen every day of shooting Francis Ford Coppola seems like a director who thrives on chaos, because this will not be the last film <laughs> that if you watch the audio commentary, the behind-the-scenes documentaries, and know the myriad of stories that went into the making of The Sausage, you could see how at any point these projects could have fallen apart. Yet there's something about this director that is able to take that chaos and transform it into these works of art. And to do it throughout the decade on a regular basis shows it's no fluke. This guy has this brilliant touch, but it would be a situation where to actually be on set, it would probably not look, look like that at the time. It's amazing how he would go make all these risks and the risks and the choices that he took almost entirely paid off. When you say thrive on chaos, I don't really feel that so much uh, as him as, say, oh, some other directors such as Samuel Fuller or uh, Robert Altman and maybe arguably John Ford like made, a, made for a hectic set and uh, delivered so many great movies despite those. But I am absolutely fascinated by what part of it would that, made, that made these decisions work so well. And part of it, I think, does come from his sense of adaptation. Sometimes when we're, uh, like, when we look at, a, when we watch for the podcast and we want to try to find something 
to say, we do a, uh, I do a procedure called watching the hell out of a movie, <laughs> where where we where if anything even comes across as even slightly interesting, I just pause and just and I just think about it. <laughs> and Coppola did this to Mario Puzo's original novel in a very special way. There is a concept in theater called a workbook, where if you have a bit of text, you take the text and you put each page of the text on a big on a workbook where it's in the center of a large sheet of paper and then you can write in on the margins and annotate what you want the scene to do as you direct as you direct it and Coppola was inspired by a workbook that Ilya Kazan did for a streetcar named Desire mm. to that end in order to keep himself to get a hold of Mario Puzo's novel he literally took every single page of Puzo's novel, put it in a gigantic workbook, and he brought this gigantic tome every day to the set. And he would put in his thoughts, his ideas, how he would take this scene and that scene, and how you would emphasize this and try and express it in creative terms. And in 2016, they published a reproduction of that very same workbook. It is, it is, and it is a spectacular document. There, I think you just get the keys of how Coppola had his interest and found it among the characterizations of Puzo's quite pulpy and exploitative novel. Yeah, I think he was really into deconstructing expectations, including what was on the page for the novel. Yeah. Just kind of going, well, how can I make this different but still remain true at the same time? But also, just a lot of his choices were considered risks, especially by the studio. I mean, nobody wanted Pacino, like I mentioned. And, and who they did want was Robert Redford. <laughs> yeah, that's, that was, uh, uh, no, no, I don't see that working out at all. But just uh, in general, yes, we can all point and say, like, well, these are some of the greatest actors giving some of the greatest performances, and there's no doubt about that, for sure. I mean, it, but it's also interesting in just the execution of a lot of these ideas were essentially just like, yeah, thought kind of spontaneously. Yeah, he wrote a lot of things down, he annotated, he did a lot of stuff, but there were still a lot of things that he sort of just threw, on, threw against the wall, and somehow it all magically came together. And it's crazy because it's such a structurally perfect film. You have that beginning in the shadows, but then you also have this clim climax that's a master's class in cross-cutting mm -hmm. as we cut expertly from the baptism of Michael's nephew, cross-cut with the murders of the warring uh, mafia families. It might be the best example of that kind of cross-cutting I've ever seen. Yeah, Each, just really mm -hmm. into death and rebirth, you know, just, I mean, right. yeah, somebody right. can point, like, look at it on the surface and go, well, that's kind of obvious, maybe, what you're getting at, but that's a theme that kind of pops up quite a bit throughout his filmography in general, like, just even using T.S. Eliot for mm -hmm. some of the dialogue in Apocalypse Now is just like, clearly this is just something that's on his mind constantly. Right, and, and the way it's edited is, is musical. You cut from the priest saying part of his prayer talking about the sanctity of life, right to a murder. Then that final shot 
that demonstrates the deterioration of his marriage to Kay when he when the door closes on her. It's just perfection. It doesn't look like a project that was chaotic in the making. Yeah. Because every piece of the puzzle works. And what is it working towards? There has been some sort of debate going on between is The Godfather the best movie on gangsters, or is Goodfellas? There's a little bit of a debate upon that, and I have a a convoluted answer to that. (laughs) Because the way, at least how I see it, is that Goodfellas is the best gangster film. William Goldman actually had a quite a disparaging reaction with The Godfather in saying, okay, they're not really gangsters. Really, gangsters engage in a lot of drug dealing and and uh, ch- even they deal in child pornography. They're just, they're scum. <laughs> so you didn't want to deal with mafia stereotypes. You wanted mm, to make them fully realized human beings. I would go further, Jim. I would actually say that he's using the mafia as a way of saying about family mm-hmm. and specifically about the immigrant experience. The yeah. first line of the movie is a guy emerging from the darkness to say, I believe in America. Right. That's not a gangster thing. That's and that's a an immigrant wanting a better life thing. A fun fact is that when Mario Puzo, the writer of the book, also wrote the screenplay, and the first draft of the screenplay, the studio decided it was a good idea to make it a modern-day 1970s update. And Coppola insisted, no, it has to be a period piece. And part of the reason why is because it is exploring this idea of opportunities for people within this culture. It's a great comparison, not just because they're both gangster films, but The Godfather and Goodfellas really both are about the American dream, but they're about the American dream's of different eras. Mm-hmm. And so the periodness of The Godfather is really key to its power, not just because it's so wonderfully rendered, but because it deals with what it meant to be an American in a post-World War II environment, in the idea that Vito represents the old country as an immigrant but he also represents these values that we can relate to. Now, Coppola constantly puts us in, a, in kind of an uncomfortable position of relating to characters who do extremely unpleasant things. So, yes, Vito is a killer. Vito is a criminal. But he has this code of ethics. We respect that, even if we don't respect the business he's in. And then you have this great contrast when he leaves the scene and Michael has to fill those shoes. You have this gradual decline where you want to think that Michael can embody the best qualities of his father and also the qualities he had himself as a young man who volunteered to go to World War II, who wanted to live the American dream with his 
American wife, not what might have been expected, a Sicilian wife from the old country. The trajectory is such Shakespearean tragedy to yeah. see what he, the shoes he had to fill, how he started out, and very meticulously how he falls. Yeah, how he gets corrupted. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to give a analogy to another classic film and follow it up by maybe a much worse analogy to go and say, I think one of the components of that about this film is that it takes those feelings, the Shakespearean drama, and it is infused with pure cinematic sensuality. Like, apart from even the story, you can just dive into how the different layers of black in, almost seem to envelop and embrace the characters. The phenomenal festivity and the vibrancy of the of life of that wedding sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to hang out with this family. That's what I'm feeling initially, you know. I mean, even though I know they're up to no good. Which is one of the best, by the way, intros. There was a yeah. whole, there was a, there, this and Deer Hunter are, are rivals for, I get more for a most, Deer Hunter, most yes. amazing feeling of being in the moment and in, and bringing up characters in an extended wedding sequence. Right, but Deer Hunter had this one to look to as an example. Mm. Mm. And Godfather does the cross-cutting as well as the as the dark dealings are cut with the incredibly bright and festive wedding mm-hmm. um, ceremony. With regards towards Al Pacino's Michael character, this is an incredibly potent and cinematically effusive take on the similar trajectory of... Jimmy Stewart's character from It's a Wonderful Life. Mm. It takes the idea of a guy who has these big dreams and uh, the dreams of leaving his local environs, but moment by moment by moment, the things he wants to value and support just get, pulls him and pulls him to a place he would have never expected. I thought you were going to say Mr. Smith goes to Washington, because... <laughs> Like, the ideology, essentially, and idealism being crushed, in a way. It's like Michael has good intentions throughout this movie, I guess, and then eventually he knows he has to play the game and then sort of deal with, like, mm-hmm. well, I guess I do have to shoot these guys. That's the only way we can get ahead, and that's, again, like, you know, a metaphor for capitalism. Well, well it's like <laughs> there's a cross between the Jimmy Stewart and the Claude Rains character. Yeah, okay, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. yeah. Because at the beginning with the wedding with Kay, he's pointing out, oh, yeah, you don't want to hear too much about Luca Brasi. <laughs> and he, so he is aware of the business that his, his family is in. It's just his impulse is strong for him to leave. But yes. the thing, get, he gets drawn into this world. But, what, but for an uh, incredibly valuable reason, to go and support the family and to support their struggles in this world where... There's no sense of, like, the cops are going, not going to help out the situation. Um, the other families are, um, uh, are not necessarily on your side. They have their own rules, but different ways they'll work around those rules. And so, moment by moment by moment, you see his inexorable pull towards this world. And 
It makes for an incredibly high tragedy, especially how deeply it's presented by Coppola. Well, when you get the scene where he has to shoot somebody for the first time, yeah, and the it, it, the suspense is just palpable when he goes to the bathroom to look for the gun, and first it's not there, then which Coppola then he did finds on purpose it. to to Pacino. Oh, didn't, nice! Didn't actually take the gun in the back to fuck with him a little bit, <laughs> which is nice. I think it's like because you, then you in the moment create that actual anxiety in Pacino, mm-hmm. you know? right? And that was just perfect. And you see through Pacino's performance how that act changes him, mm-hmm. and then he's further changed by his experience connecting to the old country in Sicily, and falling in love there, having this vision of what it might be like to follow in his father's footsteps. Yeah put before him for the first time and his relationship with Kay is just never the same after that. I would go and that's where my other incredibly crazy analogy comes in where I saw a connection with that within the last moments of Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ. Mm. It works as this vision Mm. that it might as well be the vision that Michael has of the kind of world that his father may have had and the kind of world that may have been the only option for him had he not been in America at the time. And speaking of Michael, though, I want to ask you guys, do you think this is that when you're... Because it's not called Michael Corleone. (laughs) Of course, it's based on the book's name, but do you think that when they say The Godfather, it means Michael or Vito? Well, is it it the end or the beginning of the movie? (laughs) Because they both, because it is about a man trying to fill his father's shoes, and the expectations that Michael has to fill those shoes, and the fact that he has to do something as big as killing the heads of all the families at the end, because he doesn't have the gravitas that his father has. He doesn't have that respect that we see at the beginning of the film for mm-hmm. Vito. So, in his mind, the only way to make that happen, once he's decided that this is what he needs to do, is an absolute bloodbath. That's how I think corporations think. Yeah. <laughs> like, we have to kill the competition. We have to figure mm-hmm. out ways to... I mean, I think it's kind of an obvious metaphor to like just say, well, this is kind of just diving into what America, the essence of America and our our need to thrive financially to some degree. And that's obviously a part of their structure system where they they go, well, this is the business. Well, the business essentially means we got to keep bringing in money. Well, we should consider drugs, right? Because that's where the money is. And then, but Vito doesn't want to have any part of that because he knows it's not keeping in line with his traditional, traditional values like you're talking about earlier. And then, but nobody agrees with him. And then what winds up happening? There's just so many elements that I think reflect current times. It makes like a, it makes this movie more timeless when you think about it. When you think about just how all these different factions, all these different themes, all these different ideas are still kind of resonant. And similarly to something like the conversation, which we're going to get to, it's ahead of its time in that regard. Well, it engages people on these ideas on how far. The groups are going to to get their achieve their ends, mm-hmm. you know, in a in a way that 
maybe people don't appreciate as much now in a in a world where where R-rated films with excessive violence are such as Silence of the Lambs can get awards. But that goes into some incredibly bloody places in The Godfather. That horse head thing is some Peter Jackson, <laughs> Sam Raimi level stuff going on in, in, in that. Um, and yet, it's not a case like we're in Silence of the Lambs where it's a horror movie. The Godfather's not a horror movie. It's and one of the main uh, stunning achievements of it is how the grotesqueness of the of the blood and and the violence is of a piece of the world that they're yeah. in. Well, part of the strength of New Hollywood is this freedom outside of the old studio system and now with what was then the new rating system to push the envelope on what you can depict. And in the case of The Godfather, you're right, it, it, it's, it's the violence. We've seen a lot of it since then, but we, we do have to kind of imagine what it's like in 1972 mm -hmm. to see your epic, stately, period piece gangster film have a scene like uh, the death of James Conn's uh, Sonny Corleone. Exactly. There, there, I mean, there, 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 Swibs were there again? Like, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> and and I mean, there was a precedent for it in, in Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the, the, way, the way it's done in The Godfather still takes your breath away because Sonny was the guy who was supposed to take over the family. He was, James Conn plays him with full of swagger and leadership, and it's only after he dies that it truly means that Michael's the one that's going to have to do it because Fredo ain't going to be able to do it. And it always makes me sad. <laughs> I don't want. I want James Con in the whole movie. He's just so good. Yeah, and so memorable. I mean, it, it, what you guys point out, it makes you wish that like people would be able to use the Men in Black memory erasing device to catch how fresh the experience is. Look at, if you really think about it, it's very much Brando's movie in the beginning. So For sure. Brando, when he gets shot, is literally almost a psycho-level turnaround in the story. Uh, Michael is very much in the periphery. Mm -hmm. So you don't know coming in that he, how the role that this young guy is going to play on the role in the story. And the same thing for Sonny. Nobody was expecting he was going to go out in the middle of the story, much less go out that way. Yeah, yeah it's kind of like in Deliverance, where you think that Burt Reynolds is going to be the hero mm -hmm. of the film, and, and he's then dispatched, and we're like, oh boy, the, the guy we had the most confidence in, he, he's not going to be able to get us through this. Yeah. Yeah. But, but Sonny's death also leads to, I think, one of uh, Marlon Brando's greatest acting moments ever, which is his reaction to the death when uh, Robert Duvall is, is giving him the news and he kind of knows what it is ahead of time. And, and the nuance that Brando brings to that moment is so heartbreaking. And the studios initially said it was awful, which is just ridiculous to think. And that's why you need New Hollywood, because <laughs> the studios didn't know what the hell they were doing back then. No. No, <laughs> Not that they are any better now. <laughs> um, I, and to compare it with Bonnie and Clyde, I, if you see Bonnie and Clyde today, you 
can enjoy the movie, but at least for me, the violence definitely comes across as, okay, this is the thing they're doing. Mm -hmm. It's, oh my god, you think, oh my god, that is brutal. The Godfather makes it seem natural, and in Sonny's case, while it shocks, it looks totally inevitable. Because he has been such a titanic figure of pure emotion and anger, and he's so impulsive that literally he needs... Much like Toshiro Mifune's character in Throne of Blood, an epic guy of that much energy and rage needs an epic amount of bullets to effectively meet a demise. And it's funny because he's, he's a supporting character, he's a gruff character, although we do appreciate how he defends his sister uh, from her abusive husband. But for me, I, I feel so deeply, even for Sonny, let alone everybody else, that his death is much more much more meaningful to me than Bonnie and Clyde's death, because I never related to them in anywhere near the level mm-hmm. I relate to even minor characters in The Godfather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's working on these multiple kind of genres, and they're all just perfectly coalescing, because he's the, the violence part, who knows if that came from his... Corman asked Chris to depict it in in those ways, and like with regards to James Caan, those the the hundreds of squibs, they could only afford to do that once. Mm-hmm. Imagine effectively making a a wager of of couple of tens of thousands of dollars that your one special effect will work right, as opposed to the old gangster formula of the gangster clutching at his stomach and keeling mm-hmm. and keeling over. <laughs> to meet yeah. his end. But there, on the one side, you have that. On the other side, you have this sensuality which makes this almost at the level of a grand opera. Yes. Like, delivered in no small part to the incredible contributions of Nino Rota's score to this, to this picture. And on yet the third hand, it had these connections to capitalism and, and how, how a, a particular culture has to make its way and fit in this in, in this world and deal with the strange other worlds of say Hollywood on the one side and Vegas the <laughs> ultimate land of fake op- of of faux opportunity on the other and on the fourth hand it is an intensely personally detailed character of three very different brothers they're all their different approaches towards the towards the father and a fourth brother done with uh, once removed, you could say, from Duvall's character. Mm-hmm. And these basic feelings of familial loyalty and dedication and to ha- have a sense of honor and belief. Yeah, not to sound like uh, Vin Diesel, but just the importance of family, you know, mm-hmm. and just... It, it, we all have that sort of protective instinct, whether it's a survival instinct for oneself or protect those that we're closest to. And I think that film, or this film, captures that really well. But it's also an interesting movie to look at now in light of toxic masculinity being really thoroughly examined further and further as time has gone on. Because if there is a flaw, it's really just the female characters in both Godfathers are kind of, they're on the back burner maybe a little bit. I mean, we we do get a little of the uh, of Talia Shire's Connie kind of interfering in interesting ways throughout, but... Mostly she's kind of shrill <laughs> in her scenes. But I, th- I, I do think it's, 
watching it now, there's certainly things about just the idea of patriarchy and how unrelenting it can be and how all these men feel the need to like control everything, including their marriages, including whether one of their kids are, are born later, as we find out in Godfather Part 2. But. but one thing about having seen it in context with the Rain people is that Coppola is attuned to a female point of view, mm-hmm. and I think Kay, Diane Keaton's role, becomes our audience surrogate. Yeah, and yeah. you're you're so right because of the patriarchy, the toxic masculinity. The her arc in the film is to be gradually shut out of the story to the point where the very last moment of the film is her alienation. Yeah, and the idea that the one person who we could relate to without guilt without having to deal with the terrible things they're capable of, she's now marginalized. Mm. And a question I had. Oranges. What is up with oranges? There's a lot. <laughs> there, there's moments sprinkled throughout all three films. Well, what, what does that represent? Especially since they, they come at very inopportune times. Well, they symbolize mm-hmm. death. Because every yeah. time you see an orange, and then, somebody dies yeah. or, or comes close to dying very soon thereafter. And the production designer even said, we weren't thinking of anything other than they were a bright color to contrast all the bleakness and yeah. sort of the sepia kind of feel. And when I looked up, what do oranges represent? The color of joy and creativity. Mm-hmm. Which made me think, like, to some degree, and I know Francis Coppola has gone on record and saying, like, oh, this, I, this is a personal film, obviously. But it wasn't his own original DNA, his own material. And so like, I, I always thought of, like, well, anytime oranges appear, it could be like him subconsciously thinking, like, this is kind of the death of my own creativity by embarking on this story to some degree, because mm. I have to be a part of this world because I signed on. This is it. There's no backing out. And it's just like, wow, there's really a lot of emphasis on oranges that I hadn't picked up on until recently. Even the um, in the orange sense... <laughs> the create the creative inspiration, like just the magnetic pull behind being um, uh, f- interesting, still manifests itself because when Vito uh, has his fatal heart attack, he's in the midst of chasing his grandson amongst the groves mm-hmm. of this of this garden. That feels to me how it evokes the old world. But what does he do? He takes the orange skin, the rind puts it in his mouth, and makes himself out to be a monster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Even then, it go. It, this was, I yeah. fully believe, if you were to tell me that Brando fully thought, just improvised that, but Coppola chose to do that, to use that, and it works to inform, like, to the little kid, that's what, <laughs> that's what he's like, and the kid's trying to ward him away with the little pesticide gun, yeah. and, uh, and, the uh, and so the great man is laid low in a very interesting manner. Yeah, and I know the cinematographer said that every shot had to be from somebody's point of view, essentially, so even when we see Vito get shot and he's dropping the, the bag of oranges, mm-hmm. it is technically supposed to be from God's point of view. Oh. Which is what Francis Ford Coppola said to this. Like, the cinematographer wasn't going to shoot that, but he said, no, it's actually a point of view. We're seeing it from God's point of view. And that's the only way, like, he, you know, agreed to shoot yes. that because the cinematographer's like, every single shot essentially has to be from a perspective of somebody in the room, which is really interesting. 
way to shoot a movie, I think. Not just think about, like, the wide shots or establishing shots, but actually, like, we're so character-focused, we're focusing on what they're thinking, we're focusing on what they're feeling, so every shot sort of has to be that to some degree, which is really smart. So the Godfather saga is very far from over, but before we continue along that vein, uh, Francis Ford Coppola has something very different to present to us. The Conversation, released in 
and that's and and at surface level, that's the genre, and it works like gangbusters on that level. Mm-hmm. But I think it's so much more effective even than that as a character study. Yes. And, yeah, I I think it's Gene Hackman's best work. And since Gene Hackman is my favorite actor, that puts it pretty damn high on all my favorite performances. But what Hackman does here that even he doesn't do elsewhere is the level of internalization of this performance. Yeah is magnificent. He's doing so much with so little. He's putting on a front of the kind of person he wants to show the world, Mm. yet we're seeing, just through performance, who he is internally. And it's this portrait of loneliness and paranoia that is immensely moving. I'm really taken by the character of Harry Call. He is the nerdless samurai. <laughs> he takes these that feeling that Jean-Pierre Melville did in his film Le Samurai and in so many other gangster pictures that work on these these criminals who have a code and the code relies upon one thing, not even loyalty to your partner, so much as I've got a job to do, and the one thing I can place in value in the world I'm in is to do the job right. And like many a film from Jean-Pierre Melville, like many a film from the wannabe Melville, Michael Mann, Mm -hmm. there's so much joy that I get out of a guy who's so dedicated to the craft, to his work, And this work is in a field of technology, though, (laughs) so that's even more in my wheelhouse, and it's just getting all the details right. Now, Brad, you talk on the suspense. How incredibly suspenseful is how Coppola and Walter Murch managed to get that moment where he gets the conversation out of four different sound locations, and by mixing things and rewinding it, you hear something finally emerge from a soundscape. <laughs> not not from a visual representation, but literally from the sound itself. It's a sort of a magic how through his process he gets to you get to hear what these people are saying. And how like inviting obsession can be to some degree because even when he's trying to woo a woman <laughs> He has. It's still playing in the background. The tape that he can't get out of his head is still playing in the background. Like you would think, in that situation, you wouldn't want to be playing the thing that's kind of causing you stress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet, he mm-hmm. can't get away from it. He can't stop thinking about it. Right. It's and the it's... only passion he really has. I right. Mean, he right. has a girlfriend played by Terry Gar, but he's so intent on keeping her away from his life and shutting her out of uh, of who he really is, that he basically chases her away. He's alone even when he's not alone. And, yep. <laughs> and every time he comes back to those tapes, he comes back to this obsession because on top of everything else, he's a control freak. And he views these things as something he can control. And so when he really loses it, in the film, is when 
the tapes are stolen, or when he doesn't feel that his partner, played by uh, John Cazale, is 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 taking the uh, yeah the job seriously enough, losing that sense of control right. is <laughs> so anxiety inducing for him and. Like one of the few critiques of, of the film was just like, oh, Terry Gar is just kind of explaining what we kind of already know about his character, or at least something that we're going to get to know as we spend time with him. And she's more like, not necessarily like exposition, but just like, you know, you're this type of person, and it's driving me crazy, and it, that it, sort of thing. She may have had this little micro run as the uh, uh, downer wet blanket uh, <laughs> uh, relationship thing that she shared with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> But I, that doesn't bother me. I don't. I don't sense as many imperfections in, in this, and it, like that opening shot is one of the best openings to a movie ever. I believe it was shot by Haskell Wexler, mm-hmm. even though he wasn't on for the entire film. That sequence is just tops. We and, zoom into a public square from above, yeah, and are following our uh, eavesdroppers, the people being eavesdropped on, and a mine. A mine, the mine may be a reference to Blow Up, as which uh, concludes with a mine the tennis match. And that's one of the most astounding things about this picture is that it is working in the angle of what is it that I'm really seeing that Blow Up and De Palma's Blow Out did so well. And the kind of crisis that a person has about like divulging this and what am I supposed to do with this information? It also works in the themes of paranoia of the times, which many other filmmakers were working in. Oh, An yeah. early example mm-hmm. would be uh, John Frankenheimer's The Manchurian Candidate. An example about the same time would be the work of um, Alan Pakula, most notably in The Parallax View. However, conversation moves it a level above because it's paranoia inside and out. It has a character who is just as strong in his paranoid dwelling from his own internal struggles, his own obsessions, and his own crises from his own past, as is the world he's trying to make his way through. Look, he just about loses it when he gets a birthday gift that his landlord was able to place inside his apartment. <laughs> and just the realization that somebody could get into his apartment, yeah. he didn't give a damn about the gift, the landlord, anything. He was just like, I think he says, my most valuable possession is my key. Yes. Yeah. Right. And think about the, all the components in the movie working on both the internal and external level at the same time. This is a movie which has just about as much shadows as The Godfather does. But the shadows inform the world, and it informs his own darkness. His office, which is this, it looks like an incredible collection of increasingly smaller cages, mm-hmm. Yeah. also is about Harry Call and is about the, his world. There, it's doing these things in this amazing parallel track. Yeah, the external reflecting the internal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at, at one point, uh, a, a woman tells him, you're not supposed to feel anything about it, you're just supposed to do it. Which I think is a is kind of a testament to how some people feel about the work that they do. It's like, yeah. I'm not supposed to really love this, I'm just supposed to do it so I can pay the rent or whatever. And 
at the same time, it's like, clearly he has a passion for this, but is that passion going to consume you to the point where, yeah, you wind up only being able to play to a, a record and not actual play in a band with a bunch of people? I mean, that sort of fear seeps into people, I think, in general now with technology. Right, you're referring to his uh, saxophone Yes, playing. his saxophone yeah. playing, right? Right, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That's the thing where he's his most happy and his most content is that he is following a recording in his, uh, or, yeah. or a simul or a simulation of and it's it's also important that it's jazz as opposed to say classical mm -hmm. which jazz is a form which is fundamentally based upon improvisation and he is impro improvising right but only he can improvise or only he wants to improvise mm -hmm. <laughs> that the the rest of his quote unquote band has got to be exactly the same we're talking on this kind of constriction of a guy uh, is inability to deal with the world that almost nears the magnificent presentation of Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver, but done in a technology way and done in, like as you said, Brad, in a magnificently internalized performance. Right. He it's, has to yeah. speak such <laughs> volumes with the, the, in such a repressed frame. Yeah, they both see the ugliness of the world around them and are repelled by that. But whereas Travis Bickle's answer is that he can fix it in his own psychotic way, yeah. Harry Call's answer is to cocoon himself and to separate himself. But then you get these, these great scenes with his competitor, played by uh, Alan Garfield, yeah, uh, right. who is like, who's the, he's the big surveillance expert of the East Coast, and he's loud and gregarious and everything that's the opposite of Harry Call, and so that it's it's almost like a boxing scene seeing those two together because yeah. Call doesn't want to be social with this guy, but he also realizes this is his competitor, and he's also got, he's got to keep his eye on him too. Yes, that's right. Yeah, they sort of one-up each other in interesting ways, back-to-back. -back. Like, Alan Garfield's character is not able to, like, figure out how he was able to pull off the most recent wiretapping. And even though they're, like, looking at it on a whiteboard or whatever on the chalkboard, and he's sort of, like, trying to piece it together, and eventually he doesn't, he can't figure it out. And so Harry has to come and be like, this is how I did it. So you think, well, Harry's kind of one-upped him, and then he gets the tables turned on him later on, and that is devastating for him. Like, it's the one moment where you see him, like, break down. And even Hackman said, like, that part was really hard for me to get right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, without, like, either going too big or just too, dialing it too too much back. And I think that it's really a testament to certain moments where you mentioned the internalized performance here. It's even when he's confronting Cazell early on, he doesn't get every word out right. Like, yeah. he, you know, he stumbles and fumbles like regular human beings might in that situation. Mm-hmm. And I really like that scene because the way I took it was not a matter that it tears Harry Call up that, oh my god, this led to these people getting killed. He seems to me at that moment more angry that this guy is sort of not following the rules of the competition, which yeah. is who's doing the most surveillance. And they're like, oh yeah, well, you have three, you have these dead people uh, on your conscience. And at that point, it's not really dwelling on the conscience that this. Guy, he is not being quote unquote fair because he's dealing on a 
level that Harry does not want to deal with. Harry does not want to deal with the consequences of his actions. So this is sort of an outside limit. And it's interesting how that's become sort of a catalyst for the later events of the movie. What drives Harry to not to change his behavior or of being just objective, just only caring about the job? And what's very cool is it's... It's a misreading, which is ironic because he has this rule that he doesn't listen to the conversations that he records. He he's just completely distances himself from them. But when he does listen in this case, and he hears the, the words, he'd he kill us. us if he had the chance. Yeah. And he reads that in a particular way. And he's wrong. Mm-hmm. But... What also drives him to follow through on, care, on caring about, the, about these two? The movie gives us these scenes to show there is some really oppressed moment from earlier in his life. The movie is psychologically rich by showing it's trying to help something within himself to save them. As much as the fact that he's trying to save two people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that both things can be, are true at the same time. Right, it's the closest he can get to human connection. This guilt turned into action. Yes, that's, yeah. and you put it exactly, yes, that's exactly it. Right, and, and, then the, and then the thriller elements really come in tight, because Harrison Ford, pre-Star Wars, pre-fame, has... This really great supporting role, he provides this menace, mm-hmm. which is not something we usually associate with Very Harrison subtly Ford, in that too. but mm-hmm. but he does it really well here, and he and he does it in a way where he doesn't give away the exact nature of the menace. Mm-hmm. You just know there's something up with this guy. He's a disturbing presence, but what that means changes the more information we get about the story. Mm -hmm. Pushing uh, Jim's idea of The Godfather being about business, uh, that Godfather explores the family business on both the family and the business side, Mm -hmm. but this makes it more explicitly about business. It's uh, uh, these machinations, because he just comes across like a a generic drone-like flunky (laughs) initially, Maybe he could have been in Dundler Miffin, if uh, for all how bland his responses are. And there's a tinge of menace. But again, it's a credit to the genius of the movie that Harry Cole is such a great performance that you don't know if it's coming from his own perspective versus is this his own viewpoint or is this guy really doing something that's menacing? Right, and it could be read either way. Yeah, yeah. especially late when we, he gets to the hotel room. He experiences that uh, that split second shot of somebody's hand touching the screen with blood, and you're thinking, did he actually see that, right, or not? It's like again, the whole movie is about subjectivity in so many different ways. It's kind of a marvel when you when you think deeply about it, but also just it works so effectively as a thriller at the same time that you get really caught up and invested. And part of me is like, yeah, I think if I had that information about what hotel room they were staying at, I would try and do the same thing. I would want to know. There's just like that vicarious, almost voyeuristic thrill that somebody like Hitchcock tapped into very early on in his career with right. a lot of his films. But here it's like actual t- 
technology that you mm-hmm. get to see it at work, at play with him in the bathroom is one of my favorite moments. Just yes. Like yeah. Him going mm-hmm. through these little details, and you even see the little recorder wobble a little bit, and that's reflected in the sound design, which is just mm-hmm. magnificent. And also, no coincidence that it's in a bathroom, because he's trying to get to the <laughs> bottom of something internal to himself, as well as trying to find out what is the mystery happening in the next room. There's a reason when the, the very horrific shot happens in one of the most private uh, devices, in a way that I think maybe would cause a young department to get with envy, like, oh yeah, of course that's, of course that's how things are going to go down, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the movie, I think, is successful in pulling apart that notion of causing us in the audience to distrust what we believe. If you want to believe that what happens at the end of the conversation is in his head, yeah, it's very possible. If you want to think that some horribly nefarious thing had, in fact, happened, that's also believable. But what it makes clear is kind of like how the the spinning top in the end of Inception wobbles a bit but doesn't (laughs) fall down. You're put in the spot where, oh my God, I don't know. I don't know if the things that... I'm trying to address our part of within myself or part of the crazy world around me. Did he actually get that telephone call at mm-hmm. the end of the movie? Or did right. he, you know, was it just like paranoia, anxiety, all these things flooding in at one time and he sort of created that in of itself? And yeah, I think of uh, also what Freakin did at the end of Bug is sort of like yes. tap into that like insane twitchy paranoia to where you have to externalize it like everything you're feeling inside has to come out and to the point where like i'm tearing everything apart because that's how i feel very very true and it results in one of the greatest physical representations of madness and obsession gone horribly wrong as i feel have ever been put to film and and echoes uh citizen kane in the way Mm. that uh the Mm. destruction of one's own home and property reflects this this internal battle going on. Now, yeah. we don't see it as aggressively with uh, with Harry Call because he's such an internalized character, but it's just bubbling up underneath. Yes. And seeing the destroyed apartment is like seeing the internal workings of mm-hmm. his own brain. Yeah, and this leads to, just to point out, an inspired way that Copeland decides to print other things is so often... The camera is moving slowly from side to side. At that ending moment, it literally could be just the movement of a security camera. Mm-hmm. But if you, when you watch the movie carefully, this sense of nervousness and antsiness comes from how often the camera will start moving, even though a person's still in the frame, or the camera will focus on a hallway and no one's there yet until a character arrives. Like you said, Jim, for how the perspective on The Godfather, each shot was from the point of view. Mm-hmm. Coppola is brilliant in giving a camera that often is like a like a Rashomon camera. It points a point of view that no character actually has. Yeah, that's I, true. I, I think it's really shows his level of artistic ambition that he places this film in between the two Godfathers because... He takes us from the epic scope of those movies, which give us entire worlds, and, like a palate cleanser, gives us this film, which is 
all about character, all about subjectivity, but continues the theme of these flawed protagonists. And in in this case, as as in Taxi Driver, unreliable narrators. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an astounding one for twofer. And we're about to get into a threefer with his next film, The Godfather Part Two from 1974. One child grows up to be somebody that just loves to learn and another child grows up to be somebody you just love to burn mom loves the both of them you see it's in the blood both kids are good and bomb blood thicker than the mud it's a family affair In this film, Michael is now entrenched as the godfather of the Corleone crime family, and enemies from all sides seek to bring him down. But what's most worrying him is his deteriorating relationship with his wife, Kay, and betrayal from his brother, Fredo. Meanwhile, through flashbacks, we follow the path of a young Vito Corleone, here played by Robert De Niro, on his journey from the streets of Sicily to becoming a powerful mafia don. If The Godfather has this perfection of structure that we talked about before, this this film is no less magnificent, but it's far more sprawling. Very ambitious. It's not as neat. And that you could, depending on how you like to watch movies, you could look at that as making it a little less or maybe even a little better because the scope increases, and instead of the father-son comparison directly through Brando and Pacino of the first movie, now you kind of get these two parallel tracks of Michael Corleone's continued descent and fall as a human being contrasted with his father Vito's rise as a young man and what made him into the character Brando would become brilliantly played by Robert De Niro in a performance that is almost entirely in Italian. It's funny because like people get into ridiculous conversations about pop culture in general. Uh, I'm very aware of that, obviously. The Beatles versus the Stones, <laughs> or ridiculous things that really, I don't know, hold a lot of weight. But there are people who still want to have the Godfather versus Godfather 2 debate. And I'm still more pro-Godfather 1, realizing that this is also another great and incredible work of art. It's damn close. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's close. I think maybe it, because it's longer, or maybe because we have like those sequences of the hearings a little bit, or... I mean, going back in time doesn't bother me at all. I find father and son stories in general and parallels like that interesting when you reflect on how can I be the man that he was when he's kind of uh, put on this pedestal and how can I live up to that? And so it makes sense to go back and forth. Some people don't like that choice. I do. But at the same time, I miss seeing Brando and James Caan <laughs> a little bit. So maybe that's why maybe I prefer personally Godfather 1. 
but there's no denying where this film goes and it ends up and seeing Michael Corleone's narrative arc here is really powerful and that final decision he makes is it sinks it sinks my heart personally I am absolutely overjoyed that the Godfather 2 exists in this exemplary form for a very particular reason though We've gone over a little bit upon the travails that Coppola had to do to make The Godfather. <laughs> All the different obstacles that he had to overcome and how it made him a nervous wreck. And I think he was nearly fired off from five different occasions yeah. <laughs> from, uh, uh, off the set of that film. I found, as me and Brad have gone on to talk about the director's club, and we've gone over the careers of these different directors, many a time we've come across where the directors came across this resistance and they weren't able to overcome it. Then they and and the film would fall far far short and you saw where it could have gone. So when I look at the career path of Coppola, starting with The Godfather, I look at Godfather Part Two and I go Oh my God, it's the Magnificent Ambersons as a complete and total success. Mm-hmm. The Magnificent Ambersons, for, for those who don't know, was Orson Welles' follow-up to Citizen Kane. But because he had um, antagonized so many people, including people at his own studio, and made a very ill-timed decision to go to Brazil and before the film had finished editing... The studio had drastically cut the film and, and in fact, destroyed several scenes. So we will never get these scenes from Ambersons. And and the film itself is really great, but it's, it's in a mangled form, which is really tragic because you see what the ending could have gone. It has a really sadly perfunctory ending. And I look at Godfather 2 and I'm like, it's the same kind of expansion on your interests, on your concerns that informed, much like how Ambersons looks at a whole community, at a whole set of people, at a wider scope, mm-hmm. but with the same sense of inspired creative decisions that keep on working the way Kane was working, just on a much bigger scale. And Godfather 2 does it. It does it. When you watch them together... It truly is one story. And yeah, no, for it, sure. I mean, like, things are foreshadowed in the first mm-hmm. film, like with Fredo, obviously. Right. And they're followed through on. It's, mm-hmm. it's like watching a fully realized universe. And you, and you mentioned Fredo, and I think this is a good time to focus on John Cazal, who has both a tragic and fascinating uh, career path. Sadly, he, he died very young of cancer, but as it turned out, every single film he was in was considered uh, a masterpiece of one level or another. His, his films were The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. Yeah. That's it. That is quite and a run. <laughs> these are all films that are canonized and will will not be forgotten but 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 he Fredo becomes much of a bigger role 
in part two. You're right, I mean, it's a tragic story, but it's fascinating to me how it's a tragedy on two levels, because you, on the one hand, are watching this poor schmuck who's in over his head, doesn't know what he's doing, and is making stupid mistakes in a world that doesn't tolerate stupid mistakes. Exactly. But what's even more powerful on a story level is how what Michael ends up doing and responding to it finally cements his his trip to hell, basically. That if there was one thing that he should have been taught by his father and should have learned is about the primacy of family. That that's the the both movies message is that there's all this crime going on and 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 machinations and moral ambiguities, but we can relate to these people because they care about family. And are forgiving. And are forgiving. So and we even when see Michael, that scene where he's forgiving him and you're like mm-hmm. you just know. Right. So when, spoiler alert, when Michael has his brother killed at the end of the film, it's the last vestige of his own humanity and self is is just now gone. And, like, the descent is complete. Yeah. And some of the roles, uh, Kazal is okay. He just happened to be perfectly fine as Harry Cole's assistant in the conversation. His... Entrance onto a boat where he realizes he will not be able to, he will not leave the boat alive, is, on the other hand, one of the most titanically moving parts of realization about what your brother's going to do to you that's, that film has ever experienced. Kazal just has all this sense of betrayal and regret pour off him just by holding a fishing rod. Mm-hmm. There's a, a song lyric that goes something like, I used to be much older than I'm younger than that now. <laughs> I think this movie is working in some of those levels. In terms of Michael's story, Michael's story in the original Godfather is the story from a kid's perspective. It's very insular and very much about the family doing right by the father, especially. Godfather 2 then has what does the person as an adult have to deal with? And its expansion, that is where that comes from. That's what informs that expansion. That all the stuff that Vito may have had to care about, about rival gangs, and is now something that is on uh, Michael's and our minds as well. And... This includes looks at entire other countries and their own immigrant experiences. There's a little bit of a hint of that in the original Godfather as the guy who's going to try to usurp the Corleones is known as the Turk. Mm-hmm. But here, whereas the first movie is so infused by the Italian culture, this one still has that feeling, especially in Vito's journey, but also points out that there's a lot of other cultures out there, and there's a lot of other things in, in motion. The senators are take a little more effort to be dealt with than the studio head at the beginning of the first Godfather, for example. Right. And the conflation of 
mobsters and business and personal interests that was hinted at in Vegas get really taken to a high level when they get to Cuba, which includes a notable fact that Michael is the one to make the realization that these guys might very well win. I think it's interesting that we get to see young Vito essentially want to create a sense of community and, and trust and respect, whereas we see Michael is kind of, not necessarily the antithesis of that, but just his soul is so corrupted. He basically can't diverge from that. He's, he's on this trajectory, and he's realizing it more and more and more, and we're realizing it along with him that he kind of doesn't have a choice if he wants to maintain his status, if he wants to end up on top of things. He has to do the most heinous and coldest things possible. It's heartbreaking to watch as we go on, and that's kind of why I always say, I'm not as interested in the um, hearings necessarily, because I feel like we're not getting to dive into the internal struggle as much, I think, in those moments. Yeah, it, it's really interesting to contrast Michael and, and Vito's journey, sure. especially because... Vito is also committing acts of murder, but there are all these kind of righteous revenge acts. Yeah. Watching him do that is kind of similar to how we feel about the Brando character. We're certainly not on board with the job and the, <laughs> and, and the violence that, that occurs but we understand. And we realize that he is working within a framework that, that where there's kind of a, a moral center in this criminal underworld, while at the same time, Michael is completely outside that framework. And, and I think one of the best scenes in the film and one of the best, possibly the best acting I've ever seen from Pacino is his confrontation with his wife, Kay, when yeah. she tells him that she's aborted their baby, who was going to be a boy, which in his eyes meant the, the heir to the throne. The intensity of that scene between Al Pacino and, and Diane Keaton is absolutely frightening. Especially from what that means, because at that point it becomes clear that he's using a family in the most exploitative sense possible. He is bought into the idea of the role of the family he is, and, and completely removed himself from the idea that these are real people that you should engage in Kay's situation. At that moment, Kay has ceased to be a person for, for Michael. Kay is a delivery vehicle for the heir to the reign that he feels he has to persist in. He cannot have a moment of happiness as being himself, or even define a version of himself, because it's a legacy that he is now dedicated at to his own destruction. Yeah, and that's reflected later, even when she's dropping off the daughter. He doesn't even acknowledge her when she's at the door. He right. just closes <laughs> the door. Again, sort of reflecting a little bit. Right? Of, a, a nice echo. Yes. Yeah. He, he's learned all the wrong lessons from this kind of old world conservatism of uh, gender roles and, yeah. and who is who in the family. 
For sure. Mm-hmm. And look at com- compare how Michael ha- deals with Fredo with the one mafia lieutenant who is going to be testifying, and then turns out that he stops testifying because Michael is in the audience. With his brother from the old country. And, you know, strangely touching note that the lieutenant later says about the traditions of the old Roman legions where you make the noble sacrifice. He makes this sacrifice for his brother. It's an interesting way to compare that with what, what Michael does and the reasons that Michael does them. Right. We should also note a really great uh, supporting performance as a opposing family head, Lee Strasberg, playing uh, Hyman Roth. Oh, yeah. And it's fascinating to see Strasberg's take on the gangster, in this case a Jewish gangster, being very soft-spoken, very paternal, but with almost kind of like what Gene Hackman does with all the, the fire going on behind the eyes and in and in hiding that you could tell from his pauses, from his silences, that he's a very dangerous man, even as he comes off very genial in casual conversation. Exactly. His take on his experience with being in America... And becoming a success is so distinct and in such a notably different way than the great Italian traditions that we were infused by in parts of 1 and 2. Like, I really am taken by a, uh, a line that Hyman Ross says and says, My fondest memory of this country is when I rigged the World Series. <laughs> That's yeah. such an interesting <laughs> counter to how you're approaching tradition, isn't it? <laughs> than than what than what than what Michael is. Michael is chasing, but Hyman Roth seems to have found an equilibrium, an approach. He reminds he, one more of Vito. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's a way of looking at the kind of uh, an older figure and and uh, possibly a paternal one. And in fact, all some of the history of part one are a uh, cause of Hyman Roth's actions in part two. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a cold war between these two. Like Michael is one superpower, Hyman Roth is another, and they sort of fight by like proxies, <laughs> almost almost like Vietnam, maybe. No. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think both both these movies. If you deconstruct them enough, you'll find so many great motifs and, and foreshadowing, but here, the, the Lake Tahoe scene where Michael tells uh, Fredo, you're nothing to me now. You look in the background. Check out the, the row of life rafts ah. outside the window. Like, that choice is is going to echo exactly what happens later, late in the film, and I think yeah. that, that attention to detail, Coppola really, whether if it's thought in the, in the spur of the moment or not, just the inclusion of it is really... The sign of a, of a great craftsman in general. Mm-hmm. And how the most tragic moments of the movie come from such a placid location. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right down to the ending shot, which would otherwise come across the relaxing moment of a, a day well done, and yet is uh, phenomenally heart, uh, heartbreaking. Yeah. The film also hits more notes. 
It's not just a stethoscope because the Cuban environment is as pulsing with life as the um, as some of the environments where they're cutting up the cake. <laughs> yeah, right. Is is sterile and uh, sterile and anonymous, and the luxury. <laughs> it's interesting. Maybe I'm making too much of a comparison with the conversation, but the sort of luxurious possibilities of Michael's home become more and more confining, or appear to be more and more confining. Oh, I don't think that's an accident. Yeah. I mean, Michael is a person constantly trapped in enclosed spaces, and it's something that's brought on by himself. It, it, it's his own flaws that trap him. He, there, there was a path for him, and which, with each moment of these films, his options become fewer and fewer. Yeah, such a colossally astounding drama, and a ingenious move to have it bounce across time. It does a trick similar to how Pulp Fiction uh, and Irreversible and Memento they do it, these shifts in time have a really potent reason for it. Right. And one of it is the, both the lore and the tragedy of a nostalgic past that you could that you could never get. And some this great is, dissolves yeah. when you have like the young Vito and then we come into frame and see Michael's face. Right. And how do you feel about the, the sort of inclusion at the end with the with the dinner scene? I sometimes I think like, yeah, it's kind of hitting the themes a little heavy there, like, oh, he was once this sort of young, naive idealist who really wanted to go out to war and carve his own path, but his family is there to sort of, they all have their roles, essentially, to kind of intervene or, you know, in the case of Fredo, actually support him. And I, I, I was like, that's an interesting choice to just go back in time at that point. It, it allows the movie to go full circle and to truly yeah, okay. wrap up the themes that were started in the first movie, which is why the third movie is so, beyond all its other flaws, unnecessary. This story, now one story, has been told magnificently over these two films. I, I want to go in a little more detail on that ending part, because I do feel a little sense, Jim, of what you mean, that... Oh, these these beloved characters, including James Conn, gets to appear mm-hmm. in that. And so, if it was not there, and it was just the inexorable close-up to Michael in the lawn chair, that might have been too brutal. Maybe you can make a statement that it was a way of giving audience at least a pleasurable note before it le- as opposed to being really morbid for a sustained minute. However... I do want to point out what makes that scene incredibly great is what happens within it. Because it is not just a flashback of them having a grand old time, of having a party and having fun and and a harbinger of of delightful days gone by. But what happens is, is that's the moment when Michael says, I'm going to join the army. Right. He is making a statement that he wants to carve a path in his own life that's separate out from the family. And this causes some rift in the family, what was a festive gathering up in that point. And, but one reason or another, everyone leaves the frame, and so he is alone in that flashback. Sure. So and you- to have that dissolve is the sense of that it, wasn't, it isn't that he's become alone. It's in a way he's always was alone. Mm. See, it's not tragedy if... 
a character starts out evil and falls down a road to even more evil and, and horror. But it is a tragedy when you can see what could have been. And that's why contrasting Michael at his lowest moment, having killed his brother, becomes more resonant when you have a scene of Michael at the moment where he could have made the other decision, where he could have followed his better instincts and led a better life. And by not choosing that path, we see this drama unfold. True. But then it also is very fair to the family side of things, too. And that I love that how it, there he's alone in both ways. It's a, sometimes can be a, it's very, very lonely to choose where path and where your loyalties can, can lie. And the Godfather Part 1 looks at that from the family side. Godfather Part Two looks at that from the business, the the adult side, and the le- and the the legacy side. Yeah. And where can you find a path that won't ultimately leave you alone, and having and where you can lead yourself astray? It is one of the greatest type tragedies depicted in in movies. Something to I would imagine, Brad, you can be the expert on Shakespeare. I think it rivals some of the most nuanced dramatic arcs that that literature has had to offer, to, I would say. To call the Godfather a Shakespearean is just true. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody like Joseph Campbell would certainly point out that like these types of stories and narrative arcs and archetypes are kind of been a part of storytelling since the beginning, and Godfather is Shakespearean in, in, in nature. And Like you're mentioning, too, I, I think of... Breaking Bad, to some degree, where you watch a character disintegrate and wind up being more corrupt than you could ever think possible. And it wouldn't resonate as strongly, or you wouldn't be so glued to it, if you didn't have an investment of him as a human being, a family man, a regular guy, kind of type, at the beginning. And, and that's a great show that, that very much took its inspiration from The Godfather. I would say so, yeah. Yeah. But if we're expecting Coppola to uh, lighten the mood... He's not going to do that for us as we head into uh, his next film, Apocalypse Now from 1979. This is the end, beautiful friend. This is the end, my only friend. Of our elaborate plans The end Of everything that stands The end At the height of the Vietnam War, Captain Willard, played by Martin Sheen, is assigned the task of finding and disposing of Marlon Brando's Colonel Kurtz, who has gone rogue, or possibly mad, and created something between a vigilante battalion and a mini-kingdom. The journey to Kurtz takes Willard and his patrol boat team deeper into the jungle, enemy territory, and the heart of darkness. Oh boy, folks. What a movie. 
maybe the ultimate statement of this movie, and especially of the person who made it, was when it played at the Cannes Film Festival. And Francis Ford Coppola, in introducing the movie, said this. He said, Some movies are about Vietnam. Apocalypse Now is Vietnam. Yes. More so even than The Godfather, the cult of this movie is very attached to the drama behind its making. So there is a magnificent documentary called Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's filmmaker's apocalypse Mm -hmm. that tells all the stories that show the state of mind that everyone was in. And we'll, we'll probably have to talk about a bit of that as, as we discuss the film. But again, just like The Godfather, I, I am struck by the contrast between the potential disaster that hinted at from these making of stories versus the masterpiece that emerges. The first thing I think of with this film is how big it is. It's When I first saw it in college, it, it may have felt to me bigger than any film had felt before. Just as The Godfather created this disconnect between following these uh, criminals identifying with them and and their terrible acts, there's a disconnect here with the reality of war and the filmed beauty of war that this movie presents. And it doesn't ignore the horribleness of it. It it goes into great detail as an anti-war film, but visually your mouth is constantly agape by what's being presented on screen. It's a time before CGI, and what you're looking at is so powerful that it affects your viewing of the film, it affects the thematics, and and for me, it makes it a singular viewing experience. There's no other film like it. In, in my opinion. Uh, it's a hard movie to talk about, too. It's, 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 like I mentioned, my dad's favorite movie, and the earliest experience I had watching this was, like, him getting uh, a beta, <laughs> Betamax tape and hooking it up to the surround sound speakers and just showing me the uh, helicopter sequence with Ride of the Valkyries playing and me kind of going, what on earth... Like, this is a whole other world for me in terms of movies, because I'm... I mean, I've, I'd seen probably, like, Spielberg movies by that point and certainly understood mm-hmm. just the epicness of what a movie can be and what it can do. But I also don't think I experienced um, the horrors of war uh, right in front of my very eyes, and certainly this along with the first hour or so full metal jacket were two things that my dad really responded strongly to i mean he was in the navy and he went into like boot camp and clearly had some uncomfortable like he was able to relate so much to full metal jacket i think with some of the humiliation that people mm. experience there it's it's such a controlled chaos that 
is really singular, like you said. And to think that Walter Murch, too, had 235 hours of footage to work with, and then Mm -hmm. kind of dial it to two and a half hours, and obviously there's longer versions, and and there's a work print cut out there or whatever, but still it's... I, I kind of watch it unfold in front of me, and every sequence is just kind of a work of art. I mean, from the opening, which really was just like, there's some footage in the garbage... Let's you know. Let's actually take a look at it and see what we have here, and that's where the opening comes from. And it's brilliant use of the Doors yeah. song. Yeah, and the sound design there. It's like only only Coppola and David Lynch know what to do with a ceiling fan. You know, in terms of like blending that sound with the helicopter, and there's just so many elements to to grasp and talk about. I mean, yeah, you obviously should see the Heart of Darkness documentary, but. Um, We'll, we'll get to a lot of the points that make this a great film. Al, do you think this is a great film? I do think it's a singular achievement. I think it's one of the most spectacular things that have been put on a movie screen. I also think that a lot of ways it's not very good. Interesting. And part of it is ties into what, Brad, to what you said, in, in that there is a disconnect. There's a, sometimes people talk about how in films that there's the text, what it's about, and then subtext, certain themes or ideas that are expressed, but not, they're not being explicitly stated, but the filmmaking wants to, we would explore these areas. I think there's an, I think there's another level below that, or not below that, but alongside that, called, that I'm just going to call sub-tuition. And what that means is, is that the filmmaking gives you a feeling, an intense, particular kind of feeling. Apocalypse Now has a... The text of it is pretty bad. The subtext is very limited, but the subtuition of it, the feeling that it evokes, is astoundingly, incredibly powerful. Jim, you were saying you can find a movie to compare it to, there, one came out, Mother. Mother, this is the war movie version of Mother. Why do I say that? Because, and why did Francis, well, why did Francis Ford Coppola say, it is Vietnam? I mean, he's obviously, he's not being literal about it, but what, and, and when you look at the movie, one of the many things that you become readily apparent is the movie does not give a crap about Vietnam's, the logistics, the history of the conflict, the it doesn't, the politics, the social ramifications, it doesn't care about any of these things. But you don't care about that, because when Coppola says it's about, it is Vietnam, he's saying, it's the mood of this country about what the hell are we doing in Vietnam. We have this idea that the military and our culture, we'd be able to have this epic battle uh, where our philosophy is going to win through. And so what are we doing there? Yeah. What the hell are we doing there? This sickening sense of death and pointlessness is exactly what the subtuition of Apocalypse Now is trafficking in. And... You feel that from the first, from an exploding forest, again, with no context whatsoever, but you don't need it because the feeling you get out of a forest where suddenly fire emerges from it is exactly the feeling that this movie is exploring and your descent into something worse and then something worse and then something worse. 
and it's using all these trappings of American military might, of American pompous notions of 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 our of the honor of our mission, and of the very idea of culture and civilization itself, and using it as signposts, merely signposts, to feel this overwhelming pulsing sense of oncoming chaotic dread. Well, well, well Venus is a great movie. Yeah, yeah. I was just <laughs> I, I believe that you were talking about text earlier. Vietnam is half the text. But the other half is its source material, Joseph Conrad's book, Heart of Darkness. And I think you have your choice, as, as you're watching, to really delve into the Vietnam experience, as I think Coppola wants us to do with that comment. But it's not a realistic film. It's a film that is heightened. But as an adaptation of Heart of Darkness, I think it's even more of a success on a story level because it's utilizing all the this imagery, this powerful imagery, to modernize a story that took place originally in the 1800s in the Congo, dealing with imperialism and racism and all kinds of horrible things of its age, but in following not necessarily the story beats of Joseph Conrad, but the mood of a physical jungle, which exists in both book and film, taking you further and further away from humanity further and further away from sanity. So there's a, a, like the Godfather, there's a structural genius to Apocalypse Now because each sequence takes you on a journey away from what we know and are comfortable with just as the Godfather meticulously shows Michael's fall because Willard is just as flawed a character as Michael. As Willard seeks out Kurtz and has his mission, we see him becoming more and more like Kurtz. Every step of the movie takes us uh, on that journey. So I think that, yes, it, it, it works as spectacle, but it also works as narrative. It's like a hero's journey. Mm -hmm. It's a... Uh... Or an anti-hero's oh, yeah, yeah, anti <laughs> yeah. journey. It's a Willard in Wonderland mm. to some degree. You know, a fairy tale kind of a approach. And yes, maybe you want to say it's episodic to some degree. Like maybe all the pieces, maybe all the events that occur don't streamline or fit together as like a cohesive whole. It's just signposts to me along a descent. One episodic sequence doesn't flow from another sequence. Hmm. It doesn't go, there isn't something you can relate from, example, the, the beauty pageant and then cut to the part with the, the tiger to cut to the part when they meet Kurtz. It's just these sections. And, and they each, don't, each one raises the stakes, though. Yeah. I don't think it raises the stakes because the stakes aren't maintaining your humanity. The stake is get Kurtz. And so it and so that's the case where the text is actually explicitly at odds with the descent. 
also uh, ties into another detriment, I think, in the film, is that while we were talking about other Coppola films, how there's a bit of a remove from the main characters in Coppola in Coppola's stories, mm-hmm. where we, we can't fully emphasize them. We have a little bit of a distance to judge or be able to make evaluations on these guys and go, okay, what they're doing is wrong or not relatable or what have you. In Apocalypse Now, Coppola takes that lens way too far. Willard, to me, is an absolute cipher. He has no personality whatsoever, aside from the fact that he has uh, he's angry, antsy in the city and wants to be back in the jungle. Yet, once he makes it to the jungle, he does not have the increased affinity or enjoyment or approach to it. He is monomaniacally dedicated towards looking in the folder of Kurtz and having the narration upon that you should never leave the boat. <laughs> you, you know, you, ju- you just made me think of something that I'd never considered before because I, I have kind of contrasted Willard with, uh, with Michael Corleone, but what you just said makes me want to contrast him also with Harry Call because... He is also has that internal element of it's about the job as a military man, as, a, as an assassin is what he is. He has this cold, this is my business, and my business in, involves killing, in this case in, in a wartime setting. But he also has that kind of meticulousness that Harry Call has and expertise. And so I think that's kind of an interesting contrast in now three characters. I do <laughs> yeah, want to yeah. disagree with you, though, when, when you say that the goal of Willard is to get Kurtz, that it's, that it's as simple as that. Because I think as you get into the Kurtz themes, he has to, I mean, yes, he gets Kurtz, but in doing so, he becomes Kurtz as... Kurtz's troops and, and, and natives bow down to Willard like he's the god. It shows something far more complex than a simple assassination. It is about Willard's journey as to whether he can remain human in this inhuman environment with this inhuman job he has to do. When you go after somebody like Kurtz, you risk becoming like that person yourself. And he's also trying to empathize a little bit when he's reading the dossier, trying to understand why he's become the man that he's become, or he's become what he's been told he's become. Because he actually has a meta at that point. He's just reading these documents and, and, and newspaper articles or whatever, and just learning about his history. And I think he's trying to at least get inside the mind of Kurtz before actually even meeting him. And then meeting him is a whole other experience in of itself. There's probably some internal conflict about whether he actually wants to go through with killing him to some degree, I think. He has well, a degree he, of respect for him. Yeah. Well, yeah. you would... Yeah, you might... You could think that. I don't think the movie gives you a lot of evidence that in that that is, in fact, what is going on. Nor does, I think, the movie give a lot of a progression, that there is an increasing level of respect for for Kurtz by the by the Willard character. At different points, the narration says he, he's cynical about the motives of the army brass, of the military brass back in, back in the city. Mm-hmm. 
But the questions that, that Willer's narration gives to Kurtz are of the most general nature that we ourselves could be asking in the audience. But key to, Brad, something you pointed out is that we are not people, I don't think we are, who get in angry rages and punch out a mirror when we're stuck cooped up in the city too long. To which I think that the type of Harry Call aspects that you were bringing up to compare with Willard, I think what Willard is wanting to express is he has this embrace of chaos. The city doesn't have chaos for him. Kind of like Coppola. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the jungle does have the opportunity to provide it. I that might be a very interesting way of looking at Apocalypse now, but from what from from how I see the film, I don't see that embracing of the chaos because he says never get off the boat. You're goddamn right. Not in like he doesn't show some sort of particular kind of queasy joy in maybe you should get off the boat sometimes. But he does eventually get off the boat. He does right. eventually, yes, he does when they get, right, exactly, when they get to port. But this increased enthusiasm towards the chaotic nature of Kurtz isn't really expressed. Well, that's why it's a, it's a journey, because he does have that inner conflict. He does understand the metaphor of getting off the boat is leaving everything that's safe, familiar, and sane. And at that point... He's still struggling with this idea. He doesn't know what he's going to do with Kurtz when he finds him. He knows what his job is, but there, there, there's so much internal struggle going on. And I think that's why I think it's so important, if you have not seen Apocalypse Now, to not start with the Redux version. Mm. You could see, see it after you've seen the original but the perfect descent structure is interrupted in the Redux version with scene, the pl French plantation scene with scenes that are fine as self-contained vignettes, but actually, in my opinion, take away from the overall power of the film. And I, I, I did talk to somebody who had a lower opinion of Apocalypse Now and found out that's the movie they started with. I'm ah. like, no, no. Mm -mm. Start with the 1979 version because that's 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 the one that, that, that shows this journey and, and lets you contrast more purely kind of Robert Duvall's amazing performance as Kilgore and his vision of kind of military might and authority, a guy who uh, is more interested in surfing than in his mission, yet is unafraid, has kind of a bit of the madness that Kurtz has, but has stopped it at a particular point. And hmm. then, well, well, it's not a good point, <laughs> right, right, right? Right. But when, but when you look at how far Kurtz takes it, yeah, it's a ratcheting up of levels. See, one thing that I like about Apocalypse Now in the terms of the madness angle you were bringing up is that I don't feel that Kilgore so much is warped along the same path of Kurtz, but I feel that the horrific environment that these everyone finds itself warps everyone in a different way. Mm -hmm. In Kilgore, he is the perfect case of a 
good old American values just gone horribly twisted in like a, a Jack D. Ripper, another evocative name mm-hmm. from Dr. Strangelove. I mean, what is his most important thing? Not even the smell of napalm in the morning. It's to make sure that these that those waves are good enough for our boys to surf. Because you know what makes us better than Vietnamese? Because Charlie don't surf. <laughs> and in the same, and even though he's exporting uh, the Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries, it's, it is all, in addition to being just one of the most intensely big, uh, big uh, battle scenes ever put on film, but what it's also saying is, here's how we're giving culture to the, culture to this uh-huh. backwater area bombarding by bombarding them with it. By bombard literally exactly, yes. Jim, mm-hmm. exactly. He's right. literally bombarding <laughs> them with culture. <laughs> right. And it, and it's a level of disregard for humanity. Yes. And that he doesn't care who's going to be killed so that he could get his good surfing. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I would say that, that that scene, that whole sequence is amazing. In terms of the production and the visual depiction of it, it's astounding. It's one of, it's probably one of the showcase scenes in a movie that has a great many ones where you don't need to have any part of the story. It's just an incredible sequence. But at the same time, it also has nothing to do with Willard. He's just there looking at this stuff. He's seeing a an echo of his mission. So... If his mission is to find Kurtz and look at the way, and we eventually see this society Kurtz has created with himself as the king and decapitated heads everywhere and an Aguirre level uh, (laughs) of carnage and absolute nihilism, that's where we end up. But... Kilgore is kind of like a sneak preview of that with some variations. So it actually, I think, does connect. Kilgore is like a premonition of Kurtz. He's kind of oblivious to bombs going off behind him, but also just the final note that he's someday this war is going to end. I think, I mean, like, obviously we always yeah. focus on the love of Napalm line, but something about the way he delivers that. Yeah, he's, well, he's, well, he's, yeah, yeah he's rendered foolish. Where is that, he going to be after that? He yeah. needs that war. Exactly. He, he can't function without There's war. There's sweetness mm, I, I, yeah. I, yeah, see, right, again, I think we're, that we're having, we're a, a little at odds on that, because I feel that if we, I feel that if we don't, um, he does really like Napalm quite a bit, so there, that is fair. <laughs> that is fair. But I feel that, like, that I feel that if, if the Vietnamese were uh, people who would wear T-shirts and and listen to American radio stations, that that would be that that would be fine with Kilgore. And more specifically, that's not Kurtz. Kurtz has no interest whatsoever in ta- in educating uh, the or or informing culture on the on his uh, denizens. Oh, whatsoever. and to be clear, they're definitely not the same. Yeah, but they are part of a progression. I mean, I imagine uh, Kilgore without a war. Being um, Robert Duvall's other role from 1979, the Great Santini. Ah. And if he didn't have if he didn't have a war to fight, he'd be throwing basketballs at his son's head. <laughs> I see. I, yeah, that's a very interesting comparison. And Great Santini is highly recommended to check out of a very uniquely flawed character that Duvall once again knocks out of the park. Uh, the, the way I see it is that it is a great, in a similar way to what Mother, it's the concerns that have been plaguing this director about this subject are all pouring out. That there's no, it's a fire hose of the stuff. 
And that's why you and that's why these people are warped in different ways. Like as much as Kilgore likes playing right at the Valkyries, the the people at the at the army base they find a third of the way through want to have a beauty pageant. They want to have a beauty mm-hmm. pageant, mm-hmm. and it's they put up so much Vegas lights, and 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 the and the uh, models are looking like they're trying to have a good time, but then what well, do you know? The jungle reasserts itself. Yeah, no. <laughs> and and that's also contrasted with. Um, two thirds of the way through, in a, in one of my favorite individual harrowing parts, there these people are firing on this other on the other side of this ridge. Willard goes to meet with them, and they say, and to say, who are you firing? I don't know. Who's in charge? <laughs> Aren't you in charge? Oh, that Ever really brings that set. brings that <laughs> brings that Vietnam sense of of futility down really home. It is a credit to the John Milius script that there are so many quotable lines in this. This mm-hmm. is one of the the movies where I can remember more of the dialogue than just about any other film. Mm. I mean, everything is filled with meaning that can be worked that can be looked at it at different levels. That scene you mentioned is wonderful because if we've been dealing with leaders who have gone mad in other parts of the film, here are now these warriors with no leaders. And what state are they in? What state of the jungle are they in when they're shooting at people who they have no idea and getting shot at and they have no idea who these people are and they don't even have orders or a structure to work under. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's another step in this descent into, into madness. Yeah. That's what Martin Sheen said when he arrived on set. was like, it's total chaos. I mean, we all know that Coppola is the man in charge, but he's often not acting like it because he's in his own frantic, mm-hmm. manic state. And that's why I think this movie is kind of like a, ingenious on so many meta levels with reflecting what it could be like to be in that situation in a place like Vietnam, but also what it could be like to make a movie in that environment in the Philippines because literally the helicopters they were using had to be used to fight off rebels elsewhere. It's kind of like this insane experience for everybody involved. And mm-hmm. Well, I, it's I, quoting it's quoting its old madness back at itself. Yeah, mm-hmm. essentially, yeah. Yeah. It's the, and, if, and Coppola does have a cameo as a over-enthusiastic uh, dire- uh, director. <laughs> right. Don't look at the camera. The camera. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look at the camera indeed, yeah. Also, when you when you, you guys had brought up the racism angle, and, and, and now looking at it, the depiction of, well... If you get far enough into Vietnam, they're clearly maniacal, non-speaking savages. <laughs> That's some. Uh, it can only work as a as a as a subtext or subtuition level because if you take that literally, like, oh man, that's not cool. <laughs> it's not, but it uh, it's also should be pointed out that what is considered the most savage is Kurtz and what Kurtz did to them and created them as savages. So, now, by the way, the book Heart of Darkness has really disturbing racism throughout, and and it's a bit of a rough read for that Mm -hmm. reason. The standards in the 70s, just a few years after the Vietnam War ended, are not going to be the same as the ones we have today. But when it comes to the idea of savagery, I think the, the film is very clear that it is Kurtz and then Willard who are the driving force 
in this savagery, and and these natives are kind of being utilized as as stormtroopers, and yeah, they're certainly not given their own agency, but if they've been brainwashed, that kind of makes sense. And so when we're looking at kind of what is the horror, what is the heart of darkness, the answer is not the Vietnamese. That's not what Apocalypse Now is saying. The answer are these people who, like Michael Corleone, have lost their souls, which and their is humanity, so yeah. vividly portrayed in the, the Brando sequences with Kurtz. We see a man who's tied to reality by just the slimmest of threads, and yet still controls the lives and death of all these people. Yet you can ju- you just see that he barely has control of his own thoughts and yeah, he's lost. urges. Hmm. See, now, that's something which I differ quite strongly at, in that, and pro- is probably the biggest detriment, aside from Willard's lack of affectation in this story, is that, oh man, Kurtz is just eight kinds of wrong by paying... It's very, very unfortunate that you caught Brando at this part of his life, but the whole movie is building up to the idea that, first off, he's an incredible warrior, a master logician, and somebody who is able to go and... um, captivate thousands of people to do his will. And bald Michelin man proportioned Brando is not up for the task. It is downright laughable to have this this guy to figure out wh- what pineapples are you consuming in mass quantities in, in, in this uh, location to have this guy is you're following this guy. And what's funny, Brad, is actually the things that he says, are actually the things that make the most sense in the movie. <laughs> because because when he talks to Willard, he makes an epic statement, which is the credit to Milius for making a great line, saying, you're not a soldier. You're here as an errand boy, sent here by clerks with a grocery list. And, just, and I find that just an incredibly accurate line. It's not a measure of his insanity if he says the most perceptive thing in the movie. <laughs> or maybe it is saying it if he's the most perceptive. Maybe we've worked our, little, worked our way all the way around. But it, it, It's a good question, but I, I do think that the film makes a very important decision to film Brando in shadows exclusively. And actually another problem with Redux is we do get scenes of him in the full light of day it's so much more interesting to see him in bits and pieces, to not get the full picture, because the behind-the-scenes part of this is that Brando was very uncooperative in the making of the film. He didn't learn his lines. He yeah. gained a lot of weight. But what Coppola makes of that is is another kind of effectiveness, because when you kind of look at an aspect of, of some rulers, especially considered mad rulers, it's the idea that if you have everything you've ever wanted, if you have complete and total authority, then kind of like Nero, a lethargic sense of power washes over you. There certainly could have been a different interpretation of Kurtz. You could have had him as a action warrior type 
And that might have worked too. But I, I think Brando, even not knowing the lines, even Brando being kind of the weird version of Brando, he'll eventually mm-hmm. really end up embracing. Yeah. It kind of works for this character. Yeah, it's again, it's a version <laughs> of expectations yeah. because. I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, really, we're building up to this guy? But at the same time, I think that's intentional to some degree. I don't know if it was just a result of like, well, Brando's really not all there. But at the same time, I think it's interesting that he's not this like all-encompassing, all-powerful force that knows every right thing to say, every right thing to do. It almost just attests like, this guy is pretty fucked up and traumatized, too. Maybe to the same level that Willard is at the beginning, and... That kind of makes it all come full circle with their confrontation. Mm. He's the guy whereas Kilgore is a more on a cult on the culture and the rah-rah spirit. The Kurtz, as we see in Apocalypse Now, is the more intellectual. He is looking at all these intellectual contradictions to the savagery of where he's located, with the concepts that he has floating in his floating in his head. It's something where if there was a little more engagement with, as opposed to reading off the cue cards, that would have particularly helped. Because near the end of the movie, he's up in his tower just dictating these things, and it's just this non-plus scene of philosophy. There's a scene from Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse, which kind of epitomizes the um, nature of Brando's presence for me, where he's spouting some philosophical gibberish and says, what is the measure of a man? Is it the aspect of him that can find outside himself? He does a really long pause, head and chin totally up, and says, I swallowed a bug. Okay, that yeah. unfortunately says a, 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 lot, a lot about his character, as, yeah, as, does, the, as does the idea that, like, um, the final conflict in, in that... Uh, it's generally not a great idea to have a conflict where one side of the conflict just... Gives up. I think no. so. Kurtz, <laughs> Kurtz does not Sorry. provide any opposition. No, no, he, whatsoever. He, but because what has happened? No, no. Kurtz in committed suicide. Yeah, Kurtz was not killed by Willard. Willard was at Kurtz's mercy at every point, but he had fallen so far into this pit. What he had on a material level was unlimited. What he could control was, was, was everything around him, yet he still remained haunted by the horror. The horror. The only way he could think of to escape was death. Kurtz wins. Let's be clear about that. Kurtz wins. Yeah, it's Kurtz manipulates Willard to go through and kill him because that's what Kurtz wanted to happen. And then when we see Willard bowed down to by the same people who were bowing down to Kurtz, it shows that Kurtz also now has a successor. Willard has taken his place and is down that same path to madness. I do want to introduce a little side aspect of the idea of succession could have been on the mind of both Godfather movies and arguably Cazal's character from from The Conversation. Where the sequence you describe sort of falls short is that both that um, uh, uh, Kurtz was already on the way of having diabetes kill him off, 
But then also that he was on top of a pyramid. You could just leap yourself off a pyramid. There has to be some measure. I think he the movies... to die like a warrior. The thing is, is that I understand that concept, but the idea is if a way to die like a warrior is to die in, right, in battle, which there's no way that was going to happen. So it ends up being a sacrifice. That's not what warriors do. Warriors fight for what they, even if, even if it's just for the valor of combat. And that's what the movie needs, but Brando is not equipped to provide that. So, in a way, it actually goes, it makes it more animalistic by making Brando's sort of a sacrifice, in a way, right? By cross-cutting another nice example right. of cross-cutting yeah. with, um, with the oxen that gets, that gets caught. Sorry, animal rights people. Yeah, she's, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, by the way, fun, fun fact, not a special effect, a real horse's head that was found from a, a slaughterhouse was right. used in The Godfather. But there needs to be some sort of reason for me in the movie, at least on a text level, for why Willard is the guy. And having a, having a absolutely zonked out uh, Dennis Hopper going, what, am I going to do it? <laughs> you. <laughs> it's well, a very fun scene. And one of my favorite <laughs> batshit uh, Hopper uh, performances, and that's not enough for me to go and say, well, why why Willard? Why him and not, so, and not in, someone he's else? He's embracing self-destruction to some degree. I mean, like, the opening sequence is kind of him, yeah, you know, punching a mirror and yep. sort of, like, I'm going to drink myself to death, which is crazy at the time because Martin Sheen was dealing with alcoholism. I think it ultimately it, it, it just goes to prove that both of these men share a lot of, of characteristics, and the, the ultimate one being, after all the shit I've been through and the shit I've seen here... Mm-hmm. There's nowhere I can go. I can't go back home. This whole thing has traumatized me so bad, I have to die. And the way they choose it is kind of different in the end, but at the same time, I think they're embracing that. But doesn't Willard leave? If he, in fact, did get the mantle and has descended to Kurtz's level of madness, shouldn't he stick around? The only way I could really find these themes of descent into madness and where that madness has been encapsulated by a successor would be as if you think he's on the boat, but he's not taking the boat to civilization, but that he's taking the boat further down into an even more hardier of darkness or There's, place. That is not a, a possibility that is yeah. eliminated. Yeah. 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 I like but that. The, yeah. For me, what I can say to the movie's phenomenal credit is that this sense of chaos and madness and ever-increasing darkness, while I don't find it successfully in the characters, is through every frame of this film. And you are logistically doing amazing things, such as the bombardment of the vi bombardment of the village, or this trek where the boat is being hit by tracer fire. And every moment is suffused with this intense sense of danger. Mm. My favorite component about it is, not only did they use the period helicopters... But it's very clear that these helicopters are flying way too damn low. They're yeah. flying way too mm -hmm. close to each other. And it's very, very easy. You feel in, uh, Jim, to your point, of a made-away. That, like, if one chopper goes a little bit too much in the wrong direction of the rotors of another one, that you something something horrible and very, very sickening and bad will happen at any moment. Yeah, this was a film very irresponsibly made. Yeah, You wouldn't yeah. want to... Uh, be anywhere, anywhere near this set, 
and, and like especially, especially yeah, right. Well, <laughs> and, yeah, and, and but, it, but especially from Coppola's own point of view, one of the famous photographs is is him with a gun to his head, pretending he's just yes. going to shoot yeah. himself. Yeah. But again, that that's that's all behind the scenes stuff. What is accomplished from that, and I would say is accomplished for the last time in Coppola's career, mm. is a miracle. Is all this chaos coming together, and I know we, we have some disagreements on elements of the film, but from my point of view, coming together to create, I think, the best war film ever made and, and, and a masterpiece. But it's interesting to kind of see when we get to part two to note that he won't work on this scale again. It's almost like the apocalypse now experience broke him. Traumatized mm. him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's right. You don't see Willard go back to civilization, and maybe we we'll, won't see Francis Ford Coppola get back to these aspects of filmmaking that informed Apocalypse Now. I mean, I, I still think it, it stands on its own as one of the all-time greats. I mean, it 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 touches upon like the hypocrisy of of just Western imperialism, and you know the madness and trauma of Vietnam during that time, and all like it just captures that mood, like you said up at the top, mm-hmm. and also just the emptiness of the futility, the uh, just our American values and coming into a whole other culture and trying to control that chaos. We should go in there. That's always like uh, this sort of Americanized ideal of just like we got to go in there and do something. We got to help, and instead of helping, we end up hurting, and then we wind up losing all these lives. I mean. There's a lot of mania, a lot of madness, and you feel it while you're watching the movie. And I think that's what I respond to mainly in movies is, like, what does this make me feel? And I realize maybe there's some elements that are imperfect, but I think the imperfections actually um, strengthen the movie to some degree. Because it's very much part of the movie's subject. So, yeah. And based on that discussion, I think you could see why we need to save the rest of Coppola for part two. Is a fascinating career ahead, but these four films were a pleasure to delve into with you guys. Thank you, Jim, for being a part of this. Uh, It was a great discussion. These are movies I want to revisit practically every year. I know people probably do that. They have family traditions of getting around, like for Thanksgiving or something, and watching The Godfather or whatever. Mm -hmm. But the more I watch them, the more I get out of them, and it's a great experience to talk about them. Yep. Very glad you were able to be on the boat with us, Jim. Yes. Now I'm going to get off the boat. (laughs) See what's out there. Wait, you never do that. Never get off the boat. (laughs) Um, And we're glad you guys listening in were able to join us for our discussion as some of the many interesting aspects of Francis Ford Coppola's early work. And if you want to give a commentary as to what are your favorite Francis Ford Coppola films, favorite moments from the films we talked about, or make the commentary about our explorations into Francis Ford Coppola's explorations, you can give us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Directors Club Podcast can be found all over the net thanks to the efforts of the Now Playing Network. Thanks, Jim. Anytime. Happy to help. We're on Spotify, on iTunes at Directors Club Podcast. We're on Facebook at Directors Club Podcast. And at Twitter at DC Podcast. And Jim, where can we hear your endeavors next? Oh my gosh, I'm everywhere. Uh, VoicesVisions.net, where I try to do some interviews here and there with people that I find interesting. And certainly 
it's nice to also have sometimes sporadically a home here where I can throw in a bonus episode once in a while, which you can hear recently where Patrick and I go old school and sort of talk about Suspiria and Halloween 2018, which was a joy. And of course, I'd say Letterbox is a good place to go, which I'm known as Now Playing Jim. And uh, that's pretty much it, I think. All right, great. Once again, thanks for you guys for listening, and we hope to catch you on another episode of the Director's Club. They say that the human animal is the only one that has bloodlust. Killing without purpose, killing for pleasure, you can see light through this. You take the ones that are made for garbage detail. You take the others who were made to think, but who can't act. You take... I swallowed a bug. <laughs>